I was actually supposed to go when I was 15, but my dad thought that would not be a great experience. So I get there, and I don't thrive or anything like that. So my mom would come pick me up. <laughs> my mom is an interesting cat. I'd never seen her afraid to try anything. So I decided to stay, and I never told Stanford I wasn't coming, so there's somebody waiting for their TA to show up still. I saw the independent music sector really disproportionately negatively affected. We had an insight that said, if you could do that, then you would have transformed creative discovery. So how hard could it be for us to do a startup, really? And she's like, I think I've heard this before. One of the things that's hard about fundraising is that you hear a lot of no's. Ultimately, when I look back at my life, I'm always going to look back at that and feel like we did a great thing. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Kurt DeBeek, founder and CEO of Syncfloor, a company revolutionizing discovery and acquisition of music for productions of all types, from advertising and podcasting, to filmmaking, to fitness, to esports and TV. This platform is so cool that we at Founders Unfound chose the music for this episode from Syncfloor's dedicated site, songsforpodcasters.com. Kurt is a native of Trinidad, a former fast-rising exec at Microsoft, and the creator of his own indie music label. Kurt's story is amazing, and it starts with him coming to the U.S. for college at 16. Our episode is sponsored by Black Women Talk Tech, an organization created to identify, encourage, and support black women throughout the tech startup landscape. They are hosting their Face of the Founders Summit on November 17th, bringing together entrepreneurs, investors, and partners. Registration is free, but spots are limited. You don't want to miss it. So sign up for this tremendous experience today. Find out more in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash F-O-F summit. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash F-O-F summit. If you're a new listener to Founders Unfound, we've got something special for all the black founders out there who are underestimated and undercelebrated. There's another way to get onto our podcast. Just leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. If you do this and identify yourself as a black founder, I will read your review in an upcoming episode. So make sure to plug your company, URL, and all the relevant handles. We really appreciate your support for our mission. For this episode, I want to give a shout out and a big thank you to Jessica Sanon, who gave us five stars and wrote, Finally, a platform where I am able to hear inspirational stories that keep me motivated as an entrepreneur. Keep these stories coming. Thank you so much, Jessica. That was great. Jessica's organization, Systemic Flow, focuses on STEM education for women of color. This is a cool organization that prioritizes not just learning, but also access to opportunity and fostering dreams and aspirations. Find out more at systemicflow.com or at systemic underscore flow on Instagram and Twitter, or simply at systemic flow on LinkedIn and Facebook. And systemic is S-Y-S-T-E-M-I-C. Be sure to check out the many ways to support Jessica and her mission. Wasn't that great? Now's your chance. Head over to Apple or Podchaser and drop us a review. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode number 22 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Kurt DeBeek, co-founder and CEO of Syncfloor, a company revolutionizing discovery and acquisition of music for productions of all types, from advertising to podcasting, filmmaking to fitness, 
TV to eSports. Welcome to the show, Kurt. We're super excited to have you on. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really excited to get into it. So first, let's help the listeners understand exactly what SyncFloor is all about. So our mission is to connect creatives to the music they love, to enhance the stories that they tell. We, we do that by connecting them through our marketplace of commercial music from the independent music sector in the industry from all around the world. And we do that for productions of all kinds, uh, whether it's an ad production or a film or a TV show or a podcast. We're here to make it really, really simple and intuitive for you to find the music that you want that fits your creative and lifts your narrative and to acquire that music, acquire the rights to that music to use in your production. That's awesome. And as a podcaster, I can tell you, this is definitely something that needed to be addressed uh, as a layman. We often struggle as, what does it mean to have rights and where do you get music and how does it work? So uh, super excited to delve more into SyncFloor and what it's all about and how it works. Uh, but let's start off with understanding a little bit about you. Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I am from Trinidad and Tobago, a little island seven miles off the coast of Venezuela, 10 degrees north of the equator. And I grew up there until I was 16 uh, years old, at which point I, I came to the States to go to college um, at University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida. You went when you were 16? Yes. <laughs> 16? Yeah, I was I was actually supposed to go when I was 15, but my dad thought that that would... Uh, that would not be a great experience for anybody. So, so, so he was like, "You should, you should, wait, you should wait a year." <laughs> so, okay, so, 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 hang on. So, it was were you just ahead and advanced, or is it the system in Trinidad that just prepared you at that age to go into college? Yeah, it's a, a couple of different things. You know, the the education system in in Trinidad is 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 really really great and um and so structurally it's set up that you know somebody who gets out of you know what we call fifth form um and does you know o levels the exams you take to get your certification in various subjects by the time you're you're done with that you're really at a point where you could take the equivalent of you know or take the SATs right you know and and look to get admission to to college and that typically happens when somebody's like you know sort of 16 17 you know internet i happen to also skip uh grade and uh, or the equivalent of a grade, um, uh, because I was in sort of uh, the the school that I went to had a lot of streaming, so they tested you constantly, and um, as you do all these different subjects, and um, and so at one point they said, okay, you're going to skip one of the years and go further ahead. That's how come I ended up at 15, being at a point where I could actually go ahead and do that. And but you know, like I said, I think, uh, and I think reasonably so, my dad thought that, hey, you know what, you know, you're just not, you know, sort of emotionally prepared for making that leap uh, at 15. And so let's, you know, take a year, did an additional year of school and, you know, kind of just got to a point to wrap, wrap my head around. You must have been bored out of your mind. <laughs> no, you know what? It was a, it was actually a pretty fantastic year, actually, honestly. You know, because you know, I, was, I was, you know, so you imagine you're, you're a kid, you're 15, going on 16. You, you're like, okay, I'm, I know I'm going to go to college in a year. And I think fairly early on, I had, you know, sort of my setup in terms of like, you know, I had the, schol the, the scholarship to go and blah, 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 and all that type of stuff. So really, I was just doing a year. That's pretty cool. But I can imagine, I mean, my dad came to this country to go to college when he was actually 20, I think. So coming in at 16, you're still younger than the folks that, that are matriculating. You're, <laughs> you're culturally acclimatizing to the United States. That's right. So what was that like? I mean, were you were you in 
in shock or you were just like, well, this is cool. I'm just going to roll with it. It was, it was, it was pretty, it was wild on, on a number of different dimensions. You know, I, in terms of, you know, keeping up with the curriculum, that, that part was fine. I think I'd been essentially trained my whole life to, you know, sort of academically go do, you know, stuff ahead of my, of where I was, of where I was or supposed to be. Um, so that was, uh, that, that was not the issue, but definitely culturally, you know, one good thing was that going to Miami, you know, Miami is a destination for, you know, immigrants from the, the kind of where I, where I'm from, um, lots. So, so it, it, you know, there were parts of it that just, you know, don't feel completely crazily off. You know, I wasn't necessarily going into deep winter in the Midwest or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, so, so being in Miami was, was good from that perspective, but still going to a different place, going to the States and being around people who are definitely at a different place, you know, emotionally, culturally, you know, um, you know, maturity wise on certain dimensions was definitely something to get used to. I think I, you know, one thing that was helpful for me is that I pretty early around, early on found, you know, my people and that I found a, a job in the, the computer center there. And, you know, that I was going to school to do computer engineering. I was already pretty fascinated with software and, and writing software and computers and stuff like that. And so I actually went to the, <laughs> the computer center and I just started working. Like, and the guy who ran the computer center came in one day and he was just like, who's that guy? Did we hire that guy? And they were like, I don't know. He's like, he's this guy. He, he, came, he came in and he just started like helping people out and their stuff and going behind the desk and getting printouts and stuff. And like, he just started working. <laughs> so we were like, okay, I guess maybe he's supposed to be here. And he was like, he came here. <laughs> <laughs> he came and talked to me and he's like, so, so what, what are you doing? And I was just like, I don't know, just, I, I like this stuff. So I'm, I'm helping out. And he's like, well, he's like, I tell you what, we can't actually hire you because, you know, on my visa and all that, we can't actually hire you until you do one semester. But at the end of the semester, we'll hire you. <laughs> be fine. And so I was like, sweet. And so, so, you know, I found my people and I, you know, started, you know, doing, doing computer engineering, working at the computer center. The, the other fun thing is that I, you know, I, so I got, get there. And I don't know, I don't, can't drive or anything like that. So, um, so my mom would come pick me up. <laughs> While you're in college, your mom would come and pick you. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so, so I would, I would have to wait, I would have to wait outside the, um, the music school actually for her to come pick me up. And so I'd meet all these like people from the music school as well, would probably also sort of, you know, put a certain set of things into my pool and psyche, you know? So, so. Sure. Serendipity there for sure. There you uh, go. Exactly. So, so soft, so, so computers and music were mixing really early on. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I, I was going to ask about that. Growing up in Trinidad, were you around music? Did you play music? I, I was certainly around music a lot. My, my, on my mom's side, especially is a fairly musical family. There are a lot, a lot of singers and stuff like that and there's of course the very typical thing culturally where you know you grew up doing that in church but also just you know sort of singing at different kinds of events and stuff like that that was always around and then you know growing up for me you know in Trinidad at least you were exposed certainly to a lot of the um top 100 top 40 blah blah, blah that kind of stuff there was a there's I remember very distinctly a, a weekend radio show it was um they would rebroadcast uh sort of a top 100 uh countdown from the states on one of the radio stations and so I remember that being like a weekend thing is you'd be you know during the day doing your chores doing whatever and you'd be listening to you know this this countdown and uh so you know you could definitely expose to a lot of you know the mainstream music of the day so you matriculate through University of Miami which is an amazing thing 
thing still. So you came to Microsoft, which is yeah. <laughs> about as far away from Miami as you can be in the continental United States here in, in the Seattle area. How do you end up at a place like Microsoft? So, so, so it's a bit of a story. You know, I was doing computer engineering and some of my friends there, um, uh, in, part, in fact, a particular friend of mine, Eduardo. So Microsoft has this internship program, right? They run during the summer, right? It was a, a pretty big thing uh, that they bring interns and there's paid internships. It was really great stuff. Um, and you get to work on real stuff and you learn a ton and all that. So anyway, so uh, one of my friends, he had done an internship the year before I graduated. And while he was there, for whatever reason, he decided to tell the recruiters, he's like, yeah, look, I've got this friend back at UM who is like the stuff. You guys shouldn't even bother to interview because they do the interviews on campus and then they pick out of that a pool of people to then send to Seattle to, to interview on campus at Microsoft. So he's like, you guys shouldn't even bother to interview him at, at UM. You should just bring him, bring him up. And in fact, you really should just hire him. What are, you, what are you guys even thinking? So they were like, oh, really? Okay. So, <laughs> Wow, we, we all need friends like that. Advocate on our behalf and our agent. Of course, he of course he didn't tell me any of this, right? So, so I ever they were like, oh, yeah, so we hear here, you know, hot stuff. So we're going to bring you on for this interview. I think they grilled me. <laughs> But at, and, but, but at the end of the interview, they, they said, yeah, you know, we, we want you to come here for an internship. So I said, yes, this would be great. It's a paid internship. I could, like, you know, uh, save some money and stuff like that. When I graduated at the time, I had an admission to Stanford for uh, computer science um, after my undergrad. So, so I was on my way to Stanford, actually. <laughs> I come to Microsoft, and about a month into my internship, they're like, you know what? We want you to stay in full time. And, uh, you know, I kind of did the math, and I was like, well, I could stay here and not starve, or I could go to school and be a starving TA or something. And so, so, so I decided to stay, and I never told Stanford I wasn't coming, so there's somebody waiting for their TA to show up still, probably. Uh. <laughs> You're like, somebody promised me a TA. Why hasn't this guy showed up? You know, <laughs> you know, so, you know um, but, but for me, I remember, you know, having decided that that's what I was going to do, talking to my parents. And they were like, what are you talking about? You know, because education in, in the Caribbean, especially, and especially during that, you know, the period I was growing up, it was, it was super important. So, you know, people would send their kids away for years to go do school, right? And to, to better themselves and, and hopefully make the next generation have a greater set of opportunities. So for them, they totally understood the idea of me going to Stanford. This thing called Microsoft, right? To them, just like, what, are you, what is that? <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, so uh, that was uh, an interesting conversation. And, and for reference, we're talking about the time when Windows was just coming out. That's right. This was ninety. This was ninety two. So, so yeah. So, so yeah. So you know, I mean, today, you know, they would be like, yeah, okay, you get it. But, but back then, you know, I mean, for somebody who wasn't in the states and um, kind of seeing what what was happening and the the you know the personal computer revolution as such taking another turn in the curve, that you know, they they were like, we we don't understand what you're what you're doing here. How did you convince your parents that it was the right decision? Well, well, well I was like, look, guys, you know, it's, it's not like you guys are, are going to somehow figure out how to have me not starve while I was at Stanford. So, so I was like, I'm getting a salary and I'm getting, you know, and, and, and really, actually, the real the real kicker was that I said, look, if I went to Stanford, I would leave and I'd probably come back to a job like this anyway. Like, you know what I mean? Like I would, I would get done and then I'd come back to try to do something like this because this is what I've been you know wanting to do. Um, and so... I'm at ground zero, you know, I might as well get in now. Amazing, amazing story. And so you have this great arc of a career, which we could have a whole separate episode on at Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was a fun 20 years for sure. You're touching all of these, you know, seminal products and points in that company's trajectory. So uh, I'm sure you could write like a three volume book yeah, about yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> 
But at some point after after a while, something gives you an itch or something. Yeah. So tell us about that transition and um, what became Brick Lane eventually. So, you know, this was in sort of 2011, 2012 timeframe. And, and I, you know, I, I was coming upon, you know, 20 years there. Um, I was about to turn 40. It was a good time to reflect. We were actually also coming to the end of a cycle. I, I, at the time, I was in the office, the, the business division, and in particular, working on office uh, mobile productivity uh, platforms and, and software and so on. And it was, and we were coming to the end of a big, you know, sort of product cycle. And so it all kind of, you know, shaped up to be a good time to just step back and think about what I wanted to do next. So that's that's sort of one sort of part of the background. The other part of the background is that. You know, over the course of a, of a period of time, I had connected significantly with um, the Seattle artistic scene, music in particular. And I had been, you know, besides making music, I was also observing um, a certain, you know, kind of disruption that was happening in the industry at the time. And this, you know, the music industry has, has of course, gone through a number of different disruptions. And this particular one is the one, you know, out of which sort of the phoenix out of the ashes was streaming, really. And looking at it, I saw the independent music sector, independent artists and, and businesses and so on, really disproportionately negatively affected by the, the, the time of that disruption, which is also generally true. The independent sector tends to get hit hard. They tend to, you know, hustle and come back and find new niches and, and so on. But um, in seeing that happen, I kind of thought, OK, well, I wonder if there's a way that I could help. Given that it was a, a time in my life that I was trying to decide what's the next big, you know, kind of thing I was going to do, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to go do this, you know, go start an independent music label. Um, and I'm going to build it around a set of principles that I thought could be really engineered to be artist focused and different, at least for the time, um, than, than what was typical. That led to the founding of Brick Lane Records. Some, something, that, that move was something that, you know, many people at the time didn't really understand. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, the, there are all these people who are like, dude, you're like, you know, you're this GM at Microsoft and you're doing all this great stuff and, you know, you know, great trajectory, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you're going to go do what? <laughs> and so, but, you know, I, I felt it was important to me and to people I cared about. And so, so I decided to do it. I mean, that's an amazing shift for sure. And I'm sure there are, just like there's people waiting for you in Stanford, there's probably some, some exec at Microsoft who was like, I thought, I thought, he was going to take my job. Where'd he go? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a total different rhythm, right? I mean, it's absolutely absolutely. And you know, it's one, it's entrepreneurial at its heart, right? You're, you're, you're hustling, you're doing your own thing. It's very different from being in, you know, sort of under the corporate wing. And, you know, it is also a different rhythm just in terms of like, if you're connecting to, with artists, right, they're on a different schedule. They're on a different tip. You know what I mean? And and so you have to really figure out how to, you know, dig deep with them to get them to where they want to go. Part of me figuring out how to be there for them was that, you know, I'm the kind of person that, you know, if I'm going to go do something, I go super deep on it so that I have a lot of empathy for, for the people involved. And so making music, going on tour, sleeping in the basement of the Booker's house in Switzerland, right, with the cat banging on the... <laughs> <laughs> trying to get in, you know, you know what I mean? All of that is part of understanding then what my artists would be going through because I, I did it too. So yeah, you had to kind of, you kind of put yourself in different shoes for sure. That's a great story. Well, and I want to hear more about Brick Lane, but we'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Kurt DeBeek from Sync Floor. 
Hello, I'm Danielle Baldwin, Digital Marketing Director for Black Women Talk Tech. We are an organization created to identify, support, and encourage Black women to build billion-dollar businesses. We're on a mission to raise the profile of Black women founders in tech, and so we invite you to our Face of a Founder Summit, November 17th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. The summit is totally virtual and brings together our community of entrepreneurs, investors, and partners to promote Black women tech founders and address funding needs across the tech startup sector. Join us in hundreds of tech entrepreneurs who will attend and receive group mentorship on how to continue fundraising despite the additional challenges posed by 2020. Attendance is free, but spots are limited. Join us by RSVPing at bit.com. L-Y slash F-O-F Summit. We look forward to seeing you for this exciting and engaging event. So we're back with Kurt DeBeek from Sync Floor. And so Kurt, we were just hearing kind of the uh, origins and evolution of, of Brick Lane. And you mentioned these principles that were foundational for how you wanted to set up Brick Lane and how you ran it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, sure, absolutely. And, and you know, there, there's a lot more talk now about, because, you know, we live in a world that has a lot more transparency, right? People can, you know, kind of get on a platform and talk about what bothers them about anything, really, uh, nowadays, right? And people, and lots of people can hear about it. So there's a lot more transparency about the issues that are at play, or, or that were at play, and it's still, to some degree, are at play in the industry. You know, when I, when I kind of came at it, I said, okay, one of the things that I was seeing was that for an artist... When you back them with, uh, you know, sort of funds to do their project and to help them uh, manage their life while they're doing their project, you know, it's essentially a loan. Like, and, and, you know, there are lots of ways to talk about it and stuff like that. And typically the industry talks about, okay, here's, here's your advance and you have to recoup through that, that advance. The advance includes what's, you know, set up for the recording budget and things like that. But, you know, in, in our case, you know, what we were seeing is that because you have to re recoup, a lot of people are always underwater, right? So after they kind of get the thing done and they, they market it, et cetera, and some amount of the budget's eaten for that and, you know, um, and, you know, making sure that they're somewhat taken care of during the process of recording and, and so on, um, and, and support for touring and all that, you know, they're still now waiting for enough to, to get made back to recoup through that before they start to see revenue. And so we said, Hey, what if we looked at it actually in some sense more like, you know, people invest in, in startups today? Right. Where it's a it's certainly a risk, but you're you're saying that I'm going to invest in you. Right. Um, and in the idea that you're going to do well in the future and we both reap the benefit at the same time. Uh, that's that's kind of the first thing that we said as a principle is that this is an investment, not alone. The the other thing we said is that you don't get locked in. So uh, re really, you know, our thing was that, you know, as a small label, there are certain things we could do for you as you started up. But what we what we would gladly see happen is that you 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 graduate to the next level. You graduate to you know a, a bigger label. You graduate to a greater publishing deal. You you know all, all of the things that show that you get to the next level and have the next level of opportunities. We're we're gonna make it so that you're not locked in. You do a project with us. If that project gets you to that next level, great. If you want to do another project with us, we can you know do that too. Um, but but is there wasn't any lock in. That's not the norm, right? That's not, that's not, and that, that was certainly back then, that wasn't, that wasn't the norm. The, norm. Um, the other thing is we said that the splits were always artist majority. So, you know, and that, this, you know, this is much more par for the course now where, you know, um, somebody might say, okay, well, it's at least 50-50. But we all, we were always like, look, back then, 
you know, people were always, again, behind on, you know, what percentage of the, the goodness they, they got accrued to them. And, um, and we said that we would always do artist majority. And so, you know, with, with all those, those things kind of at play, you know, we felt that we were coming up with a set of principles that could attract an artist because we were, we were really philosophically aligned with them and could be super transparent about that alignment. At the same time, I think it, it confused people in the industry at the time. Um, I remember, you know, one of the artists we signed, you know, when, when we were negotiating with their, uh, legal team, they asked us straight out. They were like, are, are you guys a nonprofit? <laughs> Which of course you weren't, right? And I was like, well, this is not exactly. We just think, you know, it's a good way to treat the artists or something, something like that. So, so, you know, so it just wasn't, it just wasn't, you know, the way things were, were done typically today in today's world, there's a, there are so many more avenues for artists to do things that, that, you know, they have more savvy and more leverage. In some ways, they also have less leverage because there's so there's so much music out there, right? So you're still trying to find opportunity, and that that actually is you know the thing that gets to the genesis of Singflow. But you know, we said, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this thing. We you know signed artists. We we were we we put out some beautiful music. So that you know, ultimately, when I look back at my life, I'm I'm always gonna look back at that and feel like we did a great thing. We helped some really wonderful artists make beautiful music and put it out into the world, and you know give back to the world in a way that makes it a better place. So I listened to one particular artist um, in my research. Really? Kurt DeBeek. <laughs> How'd you sign him? He must have been a tough sell. Yeah, that was the worst. That was the worst. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that guy and his team. <laughs> you, know, you know, they were, they were paid, you know. But, uh, but yeah, you know, like I say, I, I, you know, I, I definitely spend time making music myself and, you know, as a form of, of expression and, and, and a way, you know, for me, part of it was a way of healing, you know, from some things that had happened in my life. But yeah, like I said, it gave me a lot of empathy for, for what, what, what artists go through is just going through that process as well. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I look back at this sort of this arc of your career, cause I know you worked in windows media, you, you've kind of touched all of the aspects of kind of the music creation mm-hmm. journey from production and consumption right. to, being an artist to being the distribution mechanism or the or the the patreonic version i guess which is the labels right so i should have i should have had you back then <laughs> i mean like no this is what we are <laughs> when and having those those principles of empathy and equity and wanting to you know level the playing field and make it sort of a uh, a more welcoming on ramp for artists is a is a pretty powerful position and i have a hunch as you alluded to that this helped set up the vision or the concept or the catalyst for sync floor so tell us about how that how that came about so you know going back to sort of that time period of of you know jumping in to start the label to set a little bit of context i'll i'll actually talk a little bit about meeting my co-founder. So my co-founder, uh, Sejan McFarland, she is an IP attorney. And, uh, we met because she was lead outside counsel for Microsoft on, on these large transactions that I was also, the, that I was also the, the technical lead on. And, and so we worked really well together and we became friends. And, and, you know, these were really complex transactions, like high value and, you know, hundred plus page contract type things. Right? So, so, so we were like, yeah, we have a, we have a pretty good sense about how to navigate the, you know, complex IP waters and transactional waters. So when I left to start the label, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to need good counsel. I have a friend who's like a fantastic counsel, um, you know, was a partner at Preston Gates and things like that. So, so, so I said, hey, you want to come on this journey with me? And she was like, yeah, sure. You know, she's like, how hard can it be? Like, you know, 
<laughs> We've done all this hard stuff. We were, you know, it's good. It's music. You know, so <laughs> famous last words. Little did so, you know. <laughs> we know. So, so it turned out to be actually, you know, quite, quite the challenge. But we learned a lot. We learned a lot over the course of, you know, before founding, you know, Sync Floor, which was in 2017. So, so we spent, you know, five years uh, doing work with, you know, on Brick Lane. And we learned enough about the music business to kind of say, you know what, there's some areas where we can, we think we can do better. You know, um, just like there were areas we felt, you know, with the label, we could do some things better for artists. We saw that you have a, a situation where artists, and in particular in, in, in sync, in music licensing for productions, ads, film, TV, the, the access to opportunity was something that was really difficult because navigating that ecosystem was difficult for both parties in terms of connecting. And so it became something that was really wrapped up in, you know, sort of how you navigate a network of relationships. And you, you might have the perfect piece for a production, just nobody knows about you, right? And, and, and that happens in the world, certainly, but we felt that there was to an extreme in some sense. And, and an extreme that, you know, sort of took away from opportunity for a sector that we thought had a lot of fantastic things to say and, and a lot of great music that could lift narratives. So, so we, you know, we, we kind of sat and thought about that and then you know, the other thing that happened is that we said, well, if you're going to go build a business around trying to connect these ecosystems, you know, you want to look carefully at what the market looks like um, and, you know, what, you know, sort of the market opportunity looks like and, and figure out is it venture scale or not? Are you even going to be going down the path of trying to, you know, engage in, in, in venture capital um, funding around it and things like that? And and what we felt we, we saw was that, you know, you have trends on the production side so um uh, the media production side and that essentially you have a new golden age of entertainment right with with lots of new money coming in to make that uh entertainment from players like netflix and amazon and apple and so on and so forth you have a new age of advertising where you know sort of social advertising and video as a lingua franca for advertising right? where where everybody now says this is the way you communicate effectively with consumers right is driving a ton of you know, new production in that space you have sort of new media right coming up right so uh you know podcasting as a uh, as a as a great example um so those are being created you know you have essentially the passion economy right you have consumers as creators and freelancers and individuals who are creators, you know, the more creators you have and the more content being created, all of that creates this incredible drag-in force on the need for music, right? Music as the thing that is a differentiator, a lifter of narratives, a way of communicating emotion. And so um, so we said, wow, okay, you know, more than maybe people realize, this, there's this big sucking sound that's going to, you know, sort of <laughs> say, hey, whoa, you've got to find a way for those people to more effectively and efficiently connect and in some sense be able to even self-serve connect into an ecosystem for music. And then we looked at the music ecosystem and especially the independent sector where we think that there's a lot of great music to support. And we said, wow, it's a very fragmented ecosystem. And so, by the way, is the, the ecosystem of agencies and production companies and so on and so on that actually make the stuff on the media side. But it's a very fragmented ecosystem on the music side, especially in, in, this independent, in this independent sector. There's a large amount of music. You have the barrier to entry for creating music had, has gone way down. And so therefore, the, the volume and supply of music has gone way up. And so you have something like 60 million, I think, commercial music tracks on Spotify today. Uh, you know, 40,000 plus tracks a day being uploaded. And so, so you have this vast sea of stuff in a very fragmented ecosystem. And so in some sense, you have almost the perfect state of affairs for creating, you know, sort of infrastructure, connective tissue to bring 
these ecosystems together. And so that's when we said, okay, we think there's a venture scale opportunity for applying technology to more efficiently connect creative communities. That makes a lot of sense. We built it around this concept of natural language music search, right? Because we said, okay, well, what's the thing that, you know, sort of, you know, differentiates us, right? And we actually ended up finding that there were three core things that differentiate us. Um, number one is that we were talking about great content, right? And, and that's, that's a very important driver of anything that you want to do in this, in the media sphere, right? And we had differentiated great content that we thought we could get access to, right? And, and in particular, because it was so fragmented, we could add value to them by aggregating. Right. Um, and so that, so that's, that, that was interesting. The, the other one is that we, we had an inkling that there was this problem that, you know, people on the media side were expressing a desire for music in very creative, very natural terms. And that had to sort of asynchronously get out into the ether to a set of people that might, you know, try to interpret it, respond with some stuff. And then the person on that side has to collect all of that stuff and put it together in a way they can actually dig through and then actually go through to their, the, the productive process of, of trying to, you know, find what they want. That makes a lot of sense because I know that uh, I've worked with a few audio people and they'll say things like, yeah, it sounds like Justin Bieber, a song by him wrapped in tinfoil with uh, double speed. Exactly, exactly. And it's like, I, I, I don't, what does that mean? We actually spent a lot of time analyzing. We had access to an, uh, a, a significant corpus of, of these creative briefs, essentially. And so we analyzed them trying to say, well, is there like a common factor that we can derive that allows that points us in the direction of building technology building ip that could be differentiated for taking that kind of expression and turning it into music results out of an aggregated ecosystem of great music and so so that so that's the other thing we said okay well we had an insight that said if you could do that then you would have transformed creative discovery right creative professional discovery and you that front door that differentiated front door would bring in a lot of really interesting uh, transactional flow. And then finally, the other piece was that the rights regime around music is very complicated. You know, the, <laughs> the, the, the analogy I, I tend to, to use is I'd say, tell people that, you know, today, you know, music is kind of like if you went to, um, if you went to Airbnb and you, you searched around for a while, you find something, you're like, ah, this place, this is the place, right? And you're like, okay, now, now you're tense because you're like, I got to get it before somebody else books it. Right. <laughs> So, so, so you send it to the host. You're like, yeah, I love this place. I'm thinking of booking it. Now imagine if the host then said, well, hang on. I need to talk to my roommates. And, and also I need to talk to the super. And I think I have to find the building owner and, and talk to them. And, and there's a guy down the street at, at the pub. I gotta, I gotta talk to him. <laughs> right. And, and, and I, and I have to talk to his mom. That's a great analogy. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> you know. Right. And so, and so, and so that's, that's how it works today. And so there's, there's a, you know, in some sense, uh, an alternative path within the industry where because of that's been so difficult, people have started to, and there's a more and more of a trend of this, they've started to collect the representation of rights under single entities, right? They find ways to end up being what we call one stop in the industry, right? So, you know, this single entity has figured out either because of the contract they have with the artist or the contract that they have with the art, uh, a label and a publisher or what have you, they've managed to actually put everything into one nice neat box and they're like, I can rep this you know, into some ecosystem. Um, but what we found actually was there was a trend that more and more labels and publishers, so labels are becoming publishers as well and publishers are becoming labels as well. They're all, they're all essentially trying to prevent this issue of somebody with 2% of a part of a 
part of a thing saying, no, 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 I don't like that deal. That doesn't work. So, they're, so they've all just, you know, in their own self-interest, trying to, trying to solve that problem. And so because of that, we said, oh, well, if that's the trend, we can go focus on that content. So we can find great content, high quality, high production value content that has consolidated rights. Um, and if we could learn enough about it, if we could crawl those, those things, we don't have to, we don't like, just like Airbnb, we don't have to own your house, right? You know, we don't have, you don't have to have the keys to your house. We just need to know about it, right? So, so we're building a search engine that knows about the one-stop great quality content in all of these aggregated independent partners that we have. And on top of that search system, we could then build more things. We could, we could make it even more visual. We could include cultural references. So you could say, you know, this movie out of your library, like I want something that has the feel of the sound of that movie. And then having gotten them there, there, we can say all of the other workflow things that you care about, collecting the set of alts you want and sharing it with others on the team, getting direct access to downloads so you could try it in your edits, being able to go, go through a licensing workflow that was simple, you know, and all that. We could build all that around it. So end to end, you could go from desire for music to acquisition of the rights for the music for your production in a way that didn't have all of this pain and fear and friction. I love it. I think you've totally nailed it. The macro trends are all uh, feeding this need for a marketplace that streamlines discovery and workflow and access to licensing. Um, so it seems relatively obvious, uh, as you say it, as the big opportunity. But I want you to take me to the decision point of Rockstar in the corporate world at Microsoft, you know, a label mogul with Brick Lane. <laughs> I don't know if mogul would apply, but, <laughs> you know, but aspiring mogul, mogul perhaps. You know? There you go. How do you step in and then say, okay, let me make this third act, which is I got to kind of start from scratch and nobody's going to know anything about what we, you know, we have a great insight. How do you make that decision to say, okay, we're going to go build a tech company? The tech company part of it wasn't the hard part. I mean, I, I, I know I can build big systems. I've done it enough times and things like that. I hadn't built a startup before. And so that, you know, was a, was a whole different can of worms. I would say, you know, there's a part of this that I, 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 you know, I have to thank my mom for, right? Like my mom, my mom is an interesting cat. I've never seen her afraid to try anything. Right? You know, my mom's the person who, you know, she was a teacher, uh, a math teacher in Trinidad. You know, she jumped out of that and she decided to take, you know, her kids to the States and do something different there. She went and did, you know, special ed, uh, went and got her special ed doctorate. She's the, the type of person who always, like, if she saw something that she thought she you know, had a passion around, even if it took a lot of jumping in with, you know, without seeing where you're going to land, you know, kind of thing, she would just do it. <laughs> you know, I got a little bit of that. I, if I really have a belief in something, and in this case, it was an extension of a, a belief that I could help, you know, an artistic community that I cared about and that there was a way to create better access to opportunity, then I'll just I'll go do it. <laughs> you know, I know there are plenty of things I don't know, but we'll figure it out. You know, I have to thank my co-founder who, <laughs> after, the, after the first part of like going, oh, how hard could that be? And then we had five years of learning the music industry. I was like, so how hard could it be for us to do a startup, really? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I think I've heard this before, but all right, let's do it. No, nah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that's this two key things that I want to bring out for the audience, which is one is this concept of just going for it, just do it, it's kind of the Nike slogan. And stepping in, part of entrepreneurship is stepping in where there's unknowns. And so you have to have some comfort, but also this idea of having a co-founder. Oh, yeah. A lot of people ask me, like, should I, should I have a co-founder? And I always say, having another voice 
to collaborate with. Uh, forget about the sort of like how you look on paper and dividing the labor and all that. Just being able to talk to somebody else about these things, everything from the small decisions to, you know, should we partner? Should we do this? Um, so I hear both of those things as as kind of maybe some important aspects. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so, it's so important. Like, look, you know, life is life is better when you do it together. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, there's there's something to this idea of being able to carry water together, right? In in any kind of thing, whether it's in your relationship in your life or your business partnership or what have you. You know, I you know I I am always fond of saying to to the team, um, you know, onward and upward. We're in a long, long, long climb. You know, we're on K two or something like that, right? And um and you know, every once in a while you stop along the way and you reflect, but you have to kind of look up again and go, okay, we're going up there. And, you know, sometimes that person over there is going to carry the pack and sometimes you're going to carry the pack. But it's one of those things where having a co-founder is so essential to sanity on a journey that has a lot of, not just a lot of unknowns, but a lot of hardships as well as a lot of things that you want to celebrate along the way. And when you look to your left or you look to your right and you want to even celebrate something right there, it's nice to have somebody there because it, it rejuvenates you. And then, in, in you know, in the times when, you know, you can't carry the water. For whatever reason, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've talked, you know, when we met before, I told you, you know, my, my six and a half month old son, you know, he was born with a severe heart defect. And, you know, we had open heart surgery in August and we were actually also in the middle of a fundraise, as it turns out, during that time. Right. And, you know, you've, you know, being able to have somebody while you have to kind of go do something else, yeah, be able to carry the water on something that's, you know. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. This has been a great conversation so far, but we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Kurt DeBeek from SyncFloor. Hello, I'm Danielle Baldwin, Digital Marketing Director for Black Women Talk Tech. We are an organization created to identify, support, and encourage Black women to build billion-dollar businesses. We're on a mission to raise the profile of Black women founders in tech, and so we invite you to our Face of a Founder Summit, November 17th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. The summit is totally virtual and brings together our community of entrepreneurs, investors, and partners to promote Black women tech founders and address funding needs across the tech startup sector. Join us in hundreds of tech entrepreneurs who will attend and receive group mentorship on how to continue fundraising despite the additional challenges posed by 2020. Attendance is free, but spots are limited. Join us by RSVPing at bit.com. We look forward to seeing you for this exciting and engaging event. So we're back with Kurt from SyncFloor. So Kurt, uh, tell us about the dynamic of being CEO and CTO of your company at the same time. That's a pretty unusual thing to maintain. How, how are you thinking about that? I would say in, in the early stages of a startup, you simply you simply wear many hats like that's that you know what I mean whether whether they they are formally titled hats or not you wear you wear a lot of hats um, you know in, in our case making clear that there was an aspect of my job given my background right that uh, was about the deep technical expertise that it would take to actually to you know to, to accomplish the vision we had for a transformation in, in music discovery that was important to telegraph right and so so having the formal title was was useful in that sense right and people go oh okay and and you just you kind of do do what you need to do now in the in the long run right at some point you have to get out of 
uh, the business of wearing all the hats because it's it's the way you get to scale, right? You, it, it, you know, the, the, the team, the business, etc. And that's really important at certain certain points in time. But, you know, we're, we're still early enough that there's a certain kind of cohesiveness that you get, right? You know, you know, there's a thing that they talk about that founders need to be deeply, deeply passionate about the product direction and they need to have enough passion about the product implementation to be able to really wax poetic about it when they talk to, to people where that matters. They need to be the first salespeople, right? Like you're, you're doing hand-to-hand combat to, to bring in, you know, the first, you know, customers or, or in our, in a marketplace, the first suppliers and all that kind of stuff. And so you can't really shy away from any of it, right? You have to, you have to just be part of all of it. So again, whether that's expressed or unexpressed in terms of title, right? You're doing all, you're doing many of the jobs. And it's just as you scale, you start to figure out, well, where can I bring in skill sets that complement or enhance and augment what we have? And how do I put myself in a position to go tackle the next important challenge that we have as a company? So I imagine that both of those titles won't be yours for the rest of the history of Syncfloor. <laughs> I'd imagine so. I'd imagine so too. And so, um, but you know, you, you, you just, you do, you do what you have to at the time. And, you know, um, in, in so far as that, it, you know, I actually wrote a bunch, you know, most of the code that, that actually, that runs the service. It's, you know, it's, it's appropriate for me to go and be the person that talks about it, um, at a le- level of technical depth when that's warranted. Sure. You mentioned in the last segment a little bit about fundraising, and I know you participated in a, an accelerator program. So maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the fundraising journey for Sync Floor so far. That was something that, you know, I hadn't done at all, you know, uh, coming into to do a startup. And so sort of, that in and of itself is a journey. And, and you know, fundraising is, is taxing work, right? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think anybody should close their eyes to that fact as such. But I think one of the things that's been really that I found always with each round that we did, I found that it really made us step back, think really, really critically about where we were and be really crisp about our narrative, not in term, not just in terms of where we came from, but where we were going. So, you know, narrating our vision, you know, getting to, to some degree our own conviction about the steps that it would take to get from A to B and be able to really clearly express that. That exercise is, is you know, really always, always important for a startup to be doing continuously and refining continuously because that exercise comes into play when you're selling, when you're recruiting, when, you know, everything, right? You're, you're, you're kind of having that conversation about who you are, where you came from, where you're going, why that's important. So let's see. So when we, we founded the company in, in March, 2017 and, you know, spent the first year really just underground hacking away at stuff, building the, building the, the first prototypes, really trying to, to, again, see if we could build this differentiated IP that did something that was actually fairly difficult. We got to the point where we felt that that was, you know, sort of pretty well done, so, uh, or, you know, and, and showed promise. And so at that point, we raised the friends and family round. And from there, we kind of said, okay, well, well, you got a marketplace, and so marketplace have, of course, the, the chicken and egg problem. Right. Uh, and so we said, okay, well, we're going to take what we've built and we're going to go after supply first, which is a fairly typical choice for, for marketplaces is to go, go get supply. And in particular, we felt that we could, you know, market ourselves as a tool for our suppliers, especially the, the larger ones, to be able to mine their own catalogs in response to, to creative briefs. And so that gave us sort of a single player mode. This allowed us to get in front of, you know, various folks. We used the network that we had from being, you know, 
uh, having a label. And so got in, very fr- in front of various folks, had them trying stuff out. It became a really great proxy for understanding what the searches that would eventually come in were and how they were evolving because you're essentially getting those people to ser- use those briefs to search you know, uh, on behalf of those clients. So you're getting a lot of interesting data that helped us refine the, the search engine and tune, you know, tune the, the, the model for it and so on. So we spent a, we spent another good year plus on that, on building supply and, and building that ecosystem uh, and getting to a credible point, um, in terms of, of thinking about, about a, lo- a launch. And that, and that, that was when we said, okay, we think it's time. We're still at pre-seed, but we think if we can, it's time to attract some institutional investment because it'll take us to the next level and prepare us for a journey that we think is going to require, you know, stages of investment to really go after the growth and the very, very large opportunity that we we see. So once you decided to do that, um, help the listeners understand. So how do you go about finding institutional investors? Because this is usually the big question people have about connections and networks and intros. And so how did you think about it? You know, uh, you know, so so one thing, you know, there's the call it mythology as such of, of the founder right you know you you think about the you know early 20s person in the garage and you know that kind of thing you know kind of coming up and, and getting the the big break and you know i think i think a lot of people have found that the reality of that is is different right either you know if you're just coming up sometimes you get a lucky break but a lot of times it's because you have some network that you're able to leverage in some way i think also the stats show that you know it's sort of the the average age of found of founders is, is a little older than most people probably think. You know, getting to a point where you could go take this kind of risk, sometimes it's helpful to, to be able to say, okay, well, I've gotten to a point in my career where I can, at least for a year or two years or whatever, go try this other thing and not, you know, have, you know, the rest of my life go upside down. So, you know, I think in, in my personal case, it was, it was that, you know, I had a 20-year career at Microsoft. You meet a lot of people, you know, in, in that time. And if you if you do good work and and... And, you know, and establish great relationships in that context, you you know, when you're doing something new, people are like, hey, what, what are you up to? Like, oh yeah, wow, that's kind of crazy and interesting. How can I help? <laughs> you know, um, and, and so you, you find ways to kind of connect with people and there's no straight line. You know, the way we met the person who is the founder of the, the, the VC that is our lead VC investor was, you know, through another connection that we'd known, you know, someone, someone we'd known for, a, time at Microsoft. He moved on to another, you know, uh, business. And, you know, we, we kind of continued to cultivate and talk about what we were doing because he could give us some really interesting advice. And ultimately, he was like, oh, you know what? I think there's somebody that I know that would be, you know, a good conversation. Why don't you guys talk? And so in talking to, to you know, his name's Kirby Winfield or, um, from Ascent Venture Capital, um, in talking to him, he had significant passion about music, had uh, a really good sense for what we were trying to do and why that was an interesting venture scale opportunity. I think once you get one person with a deep passion invested in what you're doing, right? And, and invested, I'm saying invested emotionally and intellectually. But once you get that first thing, then as they're trying to think about things, they're also thinking, oh, who else should I talk to to think about vetting what you're talking about? And you start to meet more people in that community. And it, we also had like some, you know, great, you know, friends in, in things like Corp Dev and, and who could point us at, because, you know, a lot of, when you think about who then goes in and becomes part of the VC community, you're going to find a lot of, of people who they themselves were, you know, at some point in, you know, the business or corporate world. Or what you. So, so um, you get connected into that that way. So, so we, you know, we had the good fortune of being able to leverage a career 
a long-standing career and a network to then meet people and find and find the people that you know um, were really interested in and invested in, in what we were doing. One of the things that's hard about fundraising is that you hear a lot of no's, right? And you can certainly take away from that that there's something wrong with what you're doing, right? And so you have to have a lot of conviction as a founder about what you're doing and realize that, you know, people's reason for saying no is simply that they don't see what you see. And it's not that there's anything wrong with what you see, it's just they don't see it or they're not passionate about it or it doesn't match their thesis or they are not at the right point in their fund to, do, to take that particular risk right now. Or, you know, or there are a million different reasons. Yeah, so I'm hearing three key points here, which is really great. One is leverage the heck out of your network. And no matter what size it is or how long you've been in the professional world or your personal connections, you have some network. So leverage, leverage that as much as you can. Second is this is very underestimated. You know, if I, if I had to boil it down, I would say 80% of fundraising is finding that first entity or person who is passionate and willing to go out on a limb, so to speak, and maybe think about who else can syndicate with this. And the other 20% is then the paperwork of finding those other people or talking to them and saying, <laughs> well, if Cur in this case, Kirby, if Kirby's in, then I'm in, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, and it, and it, it bears repeating on, on that particular point that you want somebody that is really passionately, intellectually invested and, and, and ideally also emotionally invested because emotion isn't a bad thing in this, in this sense, right? It's that they actually really feel it in their bones that like, this is something that is going to change the world, right? And you want that. Like, so you as a founder, you are interviewing those people as well, right? Even if, you know, there's, there's this idea of, you know, whether it's smart money or anything like that, you're, you're, what you want, especially at the early stages, isn't money for money's sake, right? You, you want people who actually really are like, no, 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 you're doing something here. Uh, and not only am I going to invest in you, but I want to help you succeed, not just because of my investment, but because I think it's going to change something important. And so I'm going to find ways, you know, I'm going to dig deeper, right, to find ways to help you on that journey. And that's the third point is this idea that not everybody's going to get it. And, and the reality is, if you're a startup that's going to be disruptive and change the, the world in major impactful ways, you're doing things in a way that, hasn't been done before and so by definition if it was straightforward and clear and obvious and everybody would understand it then it everybody be doing it and so it, it is definitely not to be taken that an investor saying no means you don't have opportunity and that you're not you're not on to something and like you said there's a there's a there's a bunch of other reasons that investors pass that really almost have nothing to do with you is it fit their ownership model does do, you know is it a space that they know or maybe they don't want to they don't want to branch off into that space you know one, one of my friends who's an entrepreneur says you know i don't judge my progress in fundraising by yeses. I judge it by noes because I know I have to get to a certain amount of noes before I'm going to get that yes. So I chase the I chase the noes to get them out of the way. Exactly, chase the noes. That's right. Exactly, exactly. You're going to get a lot of those. You're going to you got to find that going back to your thing about co-founders, right? You know, having somebody to commiserate with after your umpteenth no, right? That's that's another. You know, it's like you support each other right through that journey. Absolutely. Um, and so that that's one of my questions is, you know, so you're kind of an Afro-Caribbean heritage, your co-founder's a woman. How do you look at that in terms of, has that been beneficial? Has it been a challenge, either, you know, internal dynamics or externally how you're viewed as a team? You know, um, 
so because I think we both have such long-standing careers, and you know, sort of the you know, we have we have the receipts. When somebody without having met us, right? Which you know, bi- biases are insidious things, right? Like they they co- they come out in ways people don't even realize whether they you know they they have that intent or not, and it, they come out in ways that may even be before they see you, right? Because they make a certain assumption, right? So I I you know, we have enough paper receipts that we we tend to be able to get past some of that. We also live in a time where there's more awareness and desire, and and you know we live in a bit of a bubble, like you know in terms of the people we deal with most of the time, and and you know where we are here on in the northwest. And, but what we found is that there's a lot of more awareness now, and a lot more desire now to to try to to combat some of those you know insidious biases. In that sense, I I think you know our combination is. As founders, is something people look at and go, "Oh, well, let's have a conversation with those guys." You know, um, but it's it can be it can be it can be rough out there, and and that's it's a sad thing in that this journey is hard enough as it is, right? Without piling that nonsense on for for founders of color or or for female founders. Yeah, and I like your point about how the the lens is changing and the awareness is changing because I do think, especially in 2020, one of the outcomes we're seeing is that. It's kind of like that. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the movie uh, Field of Field of Dreams, right? Where towards the end, they kind of uh, his family starts to see the players, and uh, I think it's his his uh, his sister in law is like, "Where did all these players come from?" And it's like, "Where did all these people of color who are founders come from?" It's like, "Well, we, we we've been here." <laughs> you know, um, there's you know there's a uh, on LinkedIn I see. Uh, posts by uh, this guy, I think Stephen Wolf Pereira. He, you know, he posts executives of color. Like, I think, I think he might even be doing it once a day. It's actually, fant- it's fantastic. Like, he's he basically was just like, okay, look, you guys have been saying that there aren't enough of these people around to get into your leadership teams, your C-suite, blah blah blah. Thing. And he's like, all right, I'm going to show you that this is nonsense. And just every day, just bam, bam, he's like, here's this person, here's this person, these qualifications, this huge role, blah blah blah. <laughs> Every day, he's just like, whack, whack, whack. You know, it's it's really fantastic to see, actually. I mean, it's like, wow, yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons we started this podcast was to say, hey, there, there's definitely, there's not a pipeline problem. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, this has been a, a great conversation, Kurt. Is there any way that our audience can be helpful to Sync Floor? Sure. Um, you know, come talk to me. Come, you know, if you have perspective on it. Certainly, if you're in the audience where you're, you know, in media production, if you're in advertising or film or TV or what have you, if you're a creative director or producer or an editor or anything of that, you know, I'm your guy. Come come talk to us. Come check out what we have. Um, if you know people, tell them to come talk to us and check out what we have. We're, that's the space we're in now is that we're, we're, uh, we're about to embark on sort of the, you know, sort of big go bring people in the door kind of thing. Like not because they were working with us to kind of validate the product, but because this is going to be part of their daily workflow. And so the more perspective we have on that, the more people coming through the door, the, the faster we iterate on the product, the faster we go, all of those things. And so, you know, come, come, come chat. Awesome. And why don't you share how people can get in touch with you or your URL or social handles? Our website is syncfloor.com, S-Y-N-C-F-L-O-O-R.com. Uh, my email address is Kurt, K-I-R-T, at syncfloor.com. Feel free to send me a note anytime. On Twitter and Instagram, um, I am at Katiweo, 
which is one of my you know middle names, um, uh, an African middle name, and it's K A T E W A Y O at Katiwayo. And so, yeah, yeah, find me on any of those. And- I love it. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. This has been an incredible conversation, and we really appreciate it. We wish you success and obviously uh, continued recovery for your son. Um, and so, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Dan. Really great to be here. We'd like to thank our guest, Kurt Dubik, and our sponsor, Black Women Talk Tech. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya, editing and production by Albert Holguin. Our music was composed by Kurt Dubik, Enrique Malano Jimenez, and Michael Kihanya. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk and Anisha Barnett. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound. Founders Unfound.